invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the very first book of the Bible, to the book of Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 15. Uh, Today we look at the fourth sola. We are in a series on the five solas of the Reformation. If you're uh, visiting, that word sola means alone. It's a very important word. And this morning we come to the fourth sola, which is sola fide, or faith alone. R.C. Sproul once said that if he were locked in a prison cell and could only have one chapter of the Bible, it would be this one. The reason for that was that Sproul believed that a right understanding of Genesis 15 is crucial for a right understanding of the gospel. Genesis 15 really shapes our understanding of the gospel. That's very important because, as you know, uh, throughout church history, the church has often been plagued with legalism. The idea that if you want to be justified with God, if you want to be right with God, uh, you must have faith in Jesus, but you must also have your works. That your obedience plays a part in your justification. And the fact of the matter is that that we are easily at times drawn into this kind of thinking. We want to feel as if we contribute something. And that's why this series on the five solas is is so very important. 25 years of Zion has now passed. We are moving forward into this new year and into the years to come with a renewed emphasis on the gospel. Legalism will not find a home here. Proud, pharisaical, self-righteous Christianity, which is not Christianity at all, will not find a home here. We preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ as our only hope, not our works, not our performance, but Christ alone. And that is why the five solas are so very important for us. So this morning, Genesis 15 Sola fide, faith alone. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you were able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, How am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. 
And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. October 31st, 1517 is a date that is uh, very dear to us as Reformed Christians. October 31st, 1517 was the day that Martin Luther put forward 95 points of disagreement that he had with the church. And at the very center of Luther's concern was the question, how is a person right with God? That's a very important question. How can I, a sinner, be right with God? About 30 years after that date, in 1517, the Roman Catholic Church convened a meeting that was known as the Council of Trent. Council of Trent met um, on and off from 1545 to 1563, so a period of about 18 years, the Council of Trent met, and one of the questions they discussed was this same question, how is a person right with God? Now, as a background to that whole debate in the 16th century, we have to remember what we looked at last Sunday morning, solus Christus, Christ alone. And we said that Christ has done everything necessary for our salvation. That he is the perfect and complete and sufficient Savior. And that it is in him alone that we find the forgiveness of our sins and righteousness before God. Well, here's the question that sola fide answers. How do I receive this work of Christ? How do I make it my own? Do I have to do something? Do I have to contribute something to make the work of Christ my own? As an illustration, uh, think of the, the punch card that you might get at a sandwich shop. You go to Subway or, or Togo's and you buy your first sandwich there and they, and they give you a punch card. And children, you might know that 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 punch card is good for a free sandwich. But in order to get the free sandwich, you have to do something. In order to get the free sandwich, you have to keep going in there and you have to buy 10 more sandwiches. Is that how I get salvation? Is that how I make the work of Christ my own? I have to do something. I have to fill up that punch card. And when I get the 10 punches or I get the 10 stamps, then I get salvation. Luther and the Reformers said, no, that's not how it works. Luther and the Reformers said, faith 
is the sole instrument by which we receive the work of Christ. Not my efforts, not my performance, not my works, faith alone. Well, along came the Council of Trent, Rome's answer to the Reformation. And here's what the Council of Trent had to say about how a person is right with God. This is from chapter 16, canon number 9 of the Council of Trent. If anyone says that a sinner is justified by faith alone, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. Let him be damned. And so you have two totally different teachings. Protestantism says we are justified by faith alone. Rome says we are justified by faith and our works. And they also say if you believe that you're justified by faith alone, you are accursed. Now, as always, the question is not what does this tradition teach or what does this tradition teach? As always, as Christians, we know the question is, what does the Bible teach? And that's what we want to look at this morning. And again, this is an issue of eternal significance. Both Rome and Protestantism can't both be right. Which is it? Are we justified by faith in Christ alone? Are we justified by faith plus our works? This is a very important chapter. We're going to see it in two parts. First of all, God makes Abraham a promise. And then second, God ratifies this promise. Now, in order to understand what's going on here in chapter 15, we have to think back to chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham and he says to Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. In other words, I'm going I'm to give you, Abraham, numerous offspring. But there's kind of a major problem, isn't there? The problem is that, that Abraham doesn't have any children. It's kind of tough to be a great nation when it's you and your wife and you have no kids. It's not like Abraham is 30 years old either. Abraham is almost 100. His wife is old. His wife is barren. And and that's what Abraham brings up here in chapter 15. And in verse 2, he basically says, Lord, I don't have any children. You you tell me that you're going to make me into a great nation. You're going to give me numerous offspring. But but how is this going to work? Is Eliezer going to be my heir? Is, Is that the offspring that you're talking about? That's not what the Lord was talking about. And so God says to Abraham in verse 4, Eliezer will not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. And then notice what God does. He takes Abraham outside and he says to Abraham, look up. Look up, Abraham, and, and see if you can count all of those stars. That's how numerous your offspring is going to be. Now, now here in town, even when it's a really clear night and it's dark outside, you can't really see all that many stars. But, but children, if you've ever gone camping before, and you're camping maybe out in the mountain, up in the mountains or out at the beach or something, and, and, and you look up and it's a really dark night, and you're away from the city lights, you can see all of these stars in the sky. 4,000 years ago, Abraham didn't have any city lights to deal with. 
And so God takes him outside, and it's a dark night, and Abraham looks up, and he sees all of these stars. And and God says, Abraham, if you can count all of those stars, that's how your offspring will be. It's impossible, right? That's the point God is making here. But again, Abraham has a problem, a very serious problem. He's old. His wife is old. His wife is barren, and they have no children. But, but rather than Abraham saying, yeah, right, God. Sure, that's going to happen. Sure, you're going to give me as many offspring as the stars of the sky. I don't believe you. Notice what Abraham does. Verse 6, this is one of the great verses in all of the Bible. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. See what's going on here? Abraham knew that there was nothing he could do. There was nothing he could do to make those promises come true. He knew that, that he and Sarah were way past childbearing years. He knew that, humanly speaking, this was impossible, this was hopeless. But Abraham believed God. That's what true faith is. True faith is recognizing our own hopelessness before God. True faith is is recognizing that there's nothing we can do to change our condition. And and true faith is, is looking away from ourselves and trusting God's promises. Trusting that God will do what he says he will do. Abraham, and in spite of the seemingly impossible odds, he believes the Lord. He trusts God's promise. God gives Abraham another promise in verse 7. He, he says, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land. Abraham, I'm going to give you not only offspring, but I'm going to give you land. Now, Abraham wants some assurance. He, he asks God, God, how will I know that I'm going to possess this land? Lord, how how can I know that your promise will come true? And it's now that God ratifies this promise. It's it's now that, that God does something very interesting, very bizarre to us. God says, okay, Abraham, you want a guarantee? I'm going to give you a guarantee. I want you to go out and I want you to bring me a a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And that's what Abraham does. He goes out and he he gathers all these animals. And then you notice what he does? He he cuts them in half. And and he lays them out along a path. And so, so you can kind of picture this in your mind. Abraham goes and, and, and he gets these animals and, and he cuts them in half and, and you've got this path. And on one half of the path, he puts half of the heifer, and half of the goat, and half of the ram. And on the other half, side of the path, he, he puts the other halves of those animals. And you go, what is this all about? This is, this is bloody, this is gory, this is bizarre. I mean, it's really rather strange. Well, it's important to understand what they used to do in the ancient Near East is what they would do is that when they would enter into an agreement or a covenant, they would do this kind of procedure, this kind of ritual. It was literally called cutting a covenant. 
which is what they did with the animals. They cut the animals in half. And, and so let's say you had, you had two nations that were going to enter into a covenant with each other. And let's say that one of those nations was, was more powerful than the other nation. And so the leaders of these two nations would come together. They would, they would sit down and they'd go over the agreement. And they would say, this is what we're agreeing to do. This is what we're promising one another. And, and this is what will happen to us if we break this agreement. And after they went over the details, after they went over the specifics of the agreement, they'd bring out the animals. And they'd cut the animals in half, and, and they'd lay them out. And then get this, this is what they would do next. The, the lesser, the leader of the lesser nation, the lesser king, would walk between those animal pieces. And by doing that, the, the, the lesser king would be saying, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, if I don't keep my end of the agreement, this is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to become like these dead animals. So the stage is all set. God's given promises to Abraham. Abraham went and he got the animals. He cut them in half. He laid them along this path. And according to the culture of that day, according to the practice of that day, the very next thing that would happen is that Abraham, the lesser king, would walk between those animals. But that's not what happens. Abraham falls asleep. Abraham's out cold. Abraham, the, the lesser king, doesn't walk between the animal halves. Instead, a, a fire pot and a flaming torch goes between these animal halves. Now, I don't know how anyone can ever say the Bible's boring. The Old Testament is, is filled with fascinating stories. And here, Abraham is asleep. We're expecting Abraham, the lesser king, to walk between the animal halves, but instead it's a fire pot and a flaming torch. Children, what is the deal with a fire pot and a flaming torch? Well, in the Old Testament, fire and smoke often represent God. Children, you remember that when God led his people through the wilderness, he did it as a pillar of fire and a cloud. In other words, what's happening here in Genesis 15 is this is a visible manifestation of God passing between these cut-up animals. That's not normal in the ancient Near East. That's not normal when two kings would enter into an agreement with one another. What was normal is that the lesser king, in this case Abraham, was expected to go between those dead animals. But here it is the greater king, God himself, who passes between these animal halves. Why is that? This is why Sproul loved this chapter. Because when God passes between these cut-up animals, God is saying, if I don't keep my word, if I break my agreement, I will become like these dead, severed animals. In other words, it, it wasn't up to Abraham to make sure that this agreement was kept. It was God and God alone who would make this happen. God is saying, Abraham, I will do what I have promised to do. I will give you what I have promised. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to work for it. Simply trust me.
Again, this is why Sproul loved this chapter, because this is the gospel. The gospel is not God saying, okay, here's what I'm going to do for you. But don't forget, you need to keep your end of the deal as well. That's not good news. <laughs> That's not good news that, that God would say, I'm going to do this, but, but now it's up to you to finish the deal. The fact of the matter is that, that I will never be able to hold up my end of the deal because holding up my end of the deal means perfection, something I can and, and never will do. So this passage is, is foundational for understanding sola fide. This passage is foundational for understanding the gospel. Abraham believes God. He doesn't work for it. He isn't circumcised. He isn't even circumcised yet. That's not till chapter 17. He believes God. And God credits it to him as righteousness. And in this very vivid and profound way, God, not Abraham, God ratifies the covenant. He walks between these dead animals and he says, Abraham, I will do what I have promised. You must simply believe me. Now, as we conclude this morning, I, I, I want you to think about three questions. Because we now need to take Genesis 15 and we need to translate it in a sense into our day. We have to understand does this apply to us? Is this just some Old Testament event that has no application to me as a 21st century Christian? The first question is this Did God keep his promises to Abraham? God said, Abraham, I'm going to give you offspring. Abraham's old, 100 years old, has no kids. I'm going to give you land. Did God do what he said he would do? Absolutely he did. First of all, you all know that God gave Abraham offspring. God gave Abraham and Sarah a son, Isaac. And from Isaac, Israel became a huge nation. Deuteronomy chapter 28 says that Israel became as numerous as the stars in the sky, just like God said he would do. God also gave Abraham land. In Joshua chapter 21, verse 43, we read, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And then verse 45 of Joshua 21 says, Not one word, not one word, of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed, all came to pass. And so God gave Abraham a nation. God gave Abraham land. And that's, that's comforting to us as Christians because we know that God does not change and we know that God will always keep his promises to us. When God says to you, I will never leave you or forsake you, you can count on that to be true. When God says, I will finish my good work that I started in you, you can know that to be true. When God says, there is coming a day when I will wipe every tear from your eyes and you will be with me for all eternity, you can know that that is true because we can look back in the Old Testament and we can see how God has always kept his promises. Second question, though, is this. Is there a greater fulfillment than just Old Testament offspring and land? In other words, were the offspring and the land of the Old Testament a shadow of something greater? 
It's often true in the Old Testament that Old Testament is, is a shadow of what is greater in the New Testament, and that is certainly the case here. That the promise of offspring and the promise of land in the Old Testament finds a much greater fulfillment when we come to the New Testament. And so if you would take your Bibles and turn to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 973. I want you to see this morning that the promise that God gave Abraham 4,000 years ago promise of offspring and a land continues today. But there's a much greater reality to it than what we read in the Old Testament. Galatians chapter 3, notice verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Now look at verse 16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Paul is saying, Jesus is the true offspring of Abraham. And it is through faith in him that God's promises come to us. And that's why Paul adds what he does in verse 29. He says, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The point is that there was a greater fulfillment to God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 15. There was a greater fulfillment than just old covenant Israel. Jesus is the true offspring of Abraham. And if you belong to Jesus, you are Abraham's offspring as well. The children's song that that we may know, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. That's what Paul's saying here in Galatians 3. There's a greater fulfillment than just old covenant Israel. That greater fulfillment this morning is us. We are the offspring of Abraham. Now, there's also a greater fulfillment to the land promise. Take your Bible again and go to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. The author of Hebrews is writing to Christians who are thinking about going back to the shadows of the Old Covenant, back to the things that they could see and and touch. Notice verse 8 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. The earthly promised land was not the ultimate fulfillment of that land promise. Now look at verse 13. These all died in faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. The point is that Canaan was not the ultimate fulfillment. 
We're not, listen, we're not looking for an earthly piece of real estate. We're not looking for God to set up some headquarter here on earth. This, this world is, is not our great hope. Our great hope is a heavenly country. Our great hope is the new heavens and the new earth. And so, yes, God fulfilled his promise of offspring and land to Abraham. He did it in, a, in an earthly and, and temporal way in the Old Testament, but he did it in a much greater way in Jesus Christ. It is through Christ that we are Abraham's spiritual offspring, and it is through Christ that we have the promise of an inheritance, not an earthly inheritance, not an earthly plot of real estate. We have the promise of a heavenly inheritance. And as Peter reminds us in 1 Peter chapter 1, it is, a, it is an inheritance that will never fade away. It will never be taken from you. And so there is a greater fulfillment. There's a third question, though, and the question is this. How do I receive what God has promised? In other words, how do I, how do I become the spiritual offspring of Abraham? How do I receive this heavenly inheritance? It's a very important question this morning. There is an eternity ahead of us. All of us in this room will live forever. The question is, how do I receive the heavenly inheritance? And we're back to the original question we began with. Do I receive the promise of eternal life through faith alone or through faith plus my works? I'm going to ask you to turn one more place, this time again to Galatians Galatians chapter 3, page 973 in the Pew Bible. It's a little hard to find at times, a small book. Galatians chapter 3. Now, as you're turning there, you might know why Paul wrote this book. Paul wrote Galatians because false teachers had crept into the churches of Galatia. As I mentioned to you at the very beginning of the sermon, one thing that has plagued the church throughout history is this whole idea of legalism. This whole idea that if you want to be right with God, you must not only believe in Jesus, but you must also do your part by performing good works. Your obedience plays a part in your justification. And so these false teachers had come into the churches in Galatia, and that's exactly what they were teaching. If you want to be right with God, yeah, Jesus is great. He's very important. But so is your obedience. And if you don't obey, you will not be saved. And so Paul writes the book of Galatians to condemn legalism, to condemn this false teaching, to show that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from our works. And if you look at chapter 3, Paul starts the chapter off by, by basically asking the Galatians a series of questions. And essentially, he, he's saying to them, do you people realize what you're doing? Do, do you realize how foolish it is to think that you can be right with God on the basis of your obedience? 
And then he says, is that what the Old Testament taught? Did the Old Testament teach that that salvation is based, at least in some part, on my works? Look at verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's a direct quote from our passage in Genesis 15. Now drop down to verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Listen, if you want to go, if you want to go the law route, if if you want to take the path that gets you to heaven on the basis of your good works, Paul says you need to do all things that God commands. All things. Paul says perfection. And if you're not, if you don't do that, if you're not perfect, you're cursed. And and believe me, it's not good to be cursed by God. Now notice verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. There it is. There's the answer to our original question. How is a person right with God? You receive the promises that God gives through faith alone, apart from works of the law. Faith in what? Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit faith. You know who the fulfillment of the cut-up animals was? Jesus. Jesus Christ became as those cut-up animals. Jesus Christ became a curse for us. He shed his blood not for his own sins, for he had none, but he shed his blood for our sins. And Paul says it is through faith in him alone that we receive what is offered in the gospel, namely the forgiveness of all of our sins and righteousness and eternal life. And so I ask you this morning, are you trusting Christ alone to save you? Are you resting in what he has done? If so, you can rejoice this morning that the penalty For all of your sins has already been paid. We sang it. Jesus paid it all. And that is what was at the heart of the 16th century Protestant Reformation, that I receive what God offers in the gospel, not through my performance, but I receive what God has promised in the gospel simply by trusting Jesus Christ. We saw last Sunday morning that Jesus is the sufficient Savior. He's the perfect Savior. He's fully able to save you from all of your sins. He doesn't need your works. He doesn't need your performance. He doesn't need your efforts. Sola fide is trusting Christ alone. Alone. Not adding anything to his work. Not saying, well, you know, I get in by grace, but I stay in by my works. That's a false gospel. 
It's trusting Christ alone. Not adding anything to his perfect and finished work, simply believing in him, simply resting in him. And as I've said to you in the last few weeks, we have a hard time believing this. We have a hard time accepting this. We, we want to play a part. We, we want to get a stamp on our punch card. We want to say, this is what I've done. But God says, no. It's not your work. It's not your effort. It's not your performance. It's Jesus' work. It's Jesus' effort. It's Jesus' performance. That's what you are to rest in. Stop trying to earn my favor, God says, through what you do. Because you'll never be good enough. Trust my son alone. One author says this. It is, and this is printed in your sermon outline, it is Christ trusting sinners, not the self-trusting righteous who are the children of Abraham. The last three Sundays, we have looked at three very important phrases. Sola gratia, grace alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Brothers and sisters, this has to continue to be the heartbeat of this church. That has to continue to be the heartbeat of our message. That we are right with God, that we are forgiven, that we are given eternal life by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from our works. And when you rest in that, when you understand it, it gives you such joy. Because everything around us can be in turmoil and things in our life can be difficult and trying. But no one can take that joy from us. No one can take from us the joy of knowing what Jesus has done for us. That's why Sproul loved this chapter. That's why we should love this chapter. Because while Abraham slept... God went between those animal halves. God said, I will do what I have promised to do. And 2,000 years later, Jesus became that curse. And he took all of my sins. He took all of your sins upon himself. He paid it all. And children, you remember what Jesus said? At the very end, as he died on the cross... He says it's finished. It's finished. Simply rest in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the profound joy that the gospel gives to us. Lord, there are things in our lives that cause us anxiety and fear and worry. There's health issues and relationship difficulties and work and school stress. And Lord, those things are things that all of us have to face, but we know that no matter what we face in this life, nothing can separate us from your love. We thank you for the joy that we have in knowing that Jesus paid it all. The joy of knowing that 
all those years ago, you passed between those animal pieces, saying to Abraham and to us, I will do it. I will take the curses upon myself. And I will pay the penalty for all of the sins of my people. We thank you for that. We pray, Lord, that if there are any here this morning, if there are any watching, and they are trusting in their own efforts, we pray that they would give up on that and they would run to the cross and they would find...